If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hi there, and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine, and I'm joined by our deputy editor, Sue Wingrove. Hi, Sue. Hello. And our staff writer, Rob Atter. Hi, Hello, Rob. Dave. Uh, very good. Now, Christmas is coming, of course, so uh, we'll be celebrating by pulling a few crackers during the course of this podcast. But before we go on, let me just tell you about an extra podcast that we'll be having uh, from the BBC History Magazine team this month. Uh, we're going to be releasing it on the 10th of December, and it's going to be our special History Pub Quiz podcast. So please do download that and test your history knowledge with your friends and family over the festive break. Now, our big interviews this month are with Julian Humphreys and Max Hastings. Julian has written the cover feature on the December issue, all about the art of siege warfare, so I'll be chatting to him in a moment. Uh, But Rob has been talking to Max Hastings. So Rob, what will Max be telling us about? Well, Max, this month's podcast, is going to be talking quite a lot about Australia in the Second World War and how the Australian war effort pretty much came to a halt in around 1943. And Churchill was begging the Australian government to help Britain's cause, and Australia said, no, we're keeping our troops at home, we're not joining in. Mm, What's Max's views on all that? Well, Max is pretty appalled by it, actually. He's very critical of the Australian government and of the Australian unions who were almost impeding the Allied war effort. But he also kind of sees where Australia was coming from because a couple of years earlier, Britain had failed to protect the country when the Japanese were, you know, scything through Southeast Asia. Mm. And Australia was imperiled and Britain was concentrating on Europe and wasn't really, the Australian government didn't feel, wasn't really helping enough. It's quite a controversial topic, isn't it? It certainly is, yeah. And it's, there's, well, there's a lot of controversial topics in the Far Eastern War. We've got the, the atom bomb, you've got Japanese atrocities in the Far East, and a lot of that will be, be in the feature this month. So I think, but in the podcast too, Max makes it clear that there's a pretty unpleasant conflict. OK, well, it'll be interesting to listen to what Max has to say in a minute. Now, after those two interviews with Julian and Max, we've got a special recording from a tunnel deep inside the prehistoric Silbury Hill in Wiltshire, which is shortly to be filled in forever. Now, I was invited to take a tour of this archaeological wonder, and you'll be able to listen to uh, the archaeologist who's been leading the work from that very tunnel deep inside the hill, and that'll be the uh, last interview on this podcast. But before we get on to the interviews, uh, let me have a chat with Sue. Now, Sue's in charge of our book review section, so she gets pretty much every history book that, that's published to land on her desk. So I thought we'd have a, an end-of-year chat. So, Sue, what have been the uh, biggest books of the year that you've seen? Then? Well, we've had lots of big books of various different topics, a few that I'd pluck out of the ether. One, I think, would be Marcus Redeker's book, The Slave Ship, A Human History. Now, there's been a lot written about slavery this year. This takes a very personal look at life on the slave ships, which were obviously pretty gruesome places. It takes the sort of human angle, and it tries to use contemporary voices as much as possible. So we're sort of getting beyond the sort of factual, you know, this is what happened in the slave trade and wasn't it awful, to actually looking at the people who experienced it from the the slaves themselves to the sailors as well Mm. on these sort of horrific, you know, cargo ships. Sure. What uh, what other were the big books then? What else have we got? Well... No year would be complete without a great big Second World War book. And um, (laughs) this year we've got Saul Freelander's magisterial new work on Nazi Germany. Years of Extermination, Nazi Germany and the Jews, 1939 to 45. 
didn't we? We had Dan Stone review that in the, um, the magazine. Yeah, didn't we? Uh, he, he described it as a remarkable study, an outstanding book, and he reckons it's going to be required reading for years to come. Okay. So that's a pretty yeah. big book. And I think you picked out one other book on uh, the history of trains, didn't you, as, a, as another yeah, big book? Yeah, we all like trains, some more than others. And Fire and Steam is written by Christian Walmar. Now, he's one of the nation's most passionate advocates of rail transport, and he's also a self confessed former train spotter. Right. It's fascinating, it's accessible, and it's, it's very interesting. And the only thing I can say really is what did they do for the first 40 years before trains had toilets? If you read this book, you'll probably question. find out. Yeah. Rob, what is the answer to that? You shudder to think, really, don't you? I, I can tell you the answer if you don't want to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is they had long delays between the train arriving at the station and the train leaving the station because obviously the entire train load of people had to get off, find somewhere to go, and then hop back on again all before the train departed the station. Okay. So that, in fact, is why the trains ran on time in the past because they had great big long periods of time in which to arrive and depart. Being a there station manager can't be much fun in those days. <laughs> <laughs> now, so every year there's uh, themes in what's published. So what have been the big themes of 2007? OK, um, several big themes, mainly based on anniversaries, because we all love an anniversary. Mm. Probably the biggest anniversary was 1807 was the abolition of the slave trade on British ships. So lots of books coming out to commemorate that, written from all sorts of different angles. Mm. We had James Walvin's The Trader, The Owner and The Slave, looked at the trade through the eyes of those three types of individuals. And it's a sort of strong, gripping narrative um, and explores, you know, what it was like for people on all the different sides of the slave um, issue. Mm. Now, Marika Sherwood explored a different angle in her book After Abolition, which examines Britain's involvement in the illegal slave trade after 1807. She points out that Britain carried on investing and trading in slave-produced goods, most notably cotton, which, of course, was... Um, you know, big raw product in uh, Victorian Britain. So, yeah, that's quite an interesting angle. Yeah, I mean, Marika's always been very vociferous on the untold aspects of, uh, of the British slave trade, so I'm, sh- I'm sure she had a lot of interesting things to say. She about had that. a lot to say. Uh, yep. It was a passionate and provocative book written with anger, as our reviewer said. Yep. Now, one more on that topic was Abolition by Richard Reddy, who writes from what he calls a black Atlantic Caribbean Christian perspective. Mm. And in spite of being a Christian, he doesn't shrink from drawing attention to the church's role in the exploitation of Africans at yeah. the time. That is a very hot topic. Any more themes? Yeah, let's have, let's have one yeah, more theme. One more theme. Now, interestingly, the Second World War, seen from a German perspective, is something that seems to be happening more and more in this country. We've had lots of studies of the Second World War, but up till now we haven't really heard much from the German side. Mm. And um, this year it's all changing a bit. German historian Heinrich August Winkler's History of Pre-Nazi Germany is called Germany, The Long Road West, and he tries to explain where some of the Nazi ideals come from. And he goes back even to the medieval period to explain the sort of German psyche and how Nazism took such a hold on the country. And then we've got Hitler's Home Front by Jill Stevenson, which is a long overdue history of the rural reality of Nazi Germany. In 1933, Germany was quite a rural country. I mean, a third of the country, you know, a third of the people lived um, in, in the country. And most of them hadn't even been to the cinema, let alone a Nazi rally. Mm. A different view to the sort of pre-war Germany that we normally hear about. Yeah. And then, of course, we had that big book, Jörg Friedrich's um, The Fire, all about the bombing of Germany, yeah, didn't we? Yeah, that that yeah. made a big impact, didn't it? Yes. This translation of a, a book that came out in Germany in 2002 looks at one of the largest bombing campaigns in military history, when two million tonnes of bombs were dropped on Germany. Yeah. And, of course, many of them fell on civilian you know, subjects. 
our reviewer called it a fascinating, groundbreaking and thought-provoking book. But it's, I have to say, it's no easy read. It's got some shocking details about the, um, about the firestorms. No, it was, it was fearsomely depressing, actually, when I read it. Ream upon ream of well, basically shocking statistics about how bad the bombing was. But it's, it's yeah. information that we didn't actually know about. So, yeah, so, yeah quite yeah. an important book. I mean, I mean German historians haven't, have sort of feared to approach this because um, to show sort of Germans as victims was really against the kind of, you know, zeitgeist, really. I mean, you just didn't used to do that sort of thing. But it's happening more and more. And another book along those lines is um, Charles McDonough book, After the Reich, from the Liberation of Vienna to the Berlin Airlift, which, again, tells of the suffering that the German people endured in the aftermath of the war. As the war was closing, apparently there was this saying in Germany, enjoy the war, the peace will be terrible. Um, and it was, there was absolute chaos. There were no food, terrible, terrible things were happening as sort of people, you know, displaced people roamed the countryside trying to feed themselves. And it was just a really, really dark chapter. And no one's really written about it because... Germans themselves have been reluctant to highlight their own suffering. Hmm. Um, so, okay, well, that's that's an interesting roundup of last year's books. Just to finish off, Sue, though, tell me what you're reading right now. I'm reading a book that will be highlighted in our November issue, and that's Orlando Feige's The Whisperers, uh, which is private life in Stalin's Russia. In Russian, there are two words for the word whisperer. One means the whisperer who went to the authorities and sneaked on someone, and the other means the the whisperer who who sort of kept quiet so that they wouldn't become, you know, wouldn't get betrayed or overheard, perhaps even by their own children. And it really evokes quite strongly this sort of, you know, um, sort of paranoid feeling that there was in Stalin's Russia. But what's great about this book is that it's written after a huge oral history project um, that was run after after Russia opened up, mm. and there are some you know, incredible personal stories told, and it's really, really gripping. You know, you hear about collectivisation and the terror, the gulags, the war, just terrible personal stories. It, it's really got the wow factor, because as you, as you read it, you're sort of going, every page you're going, my God, that, that really happened. And um, and you're sort of disturbing someone to say, look, listen to this. Mm. It's it's great. Sounds like sort of a bit Robert like, but we won't let him talk about it, because he'll just go on and on if we start talking about Russian history. Now, um, uh, we haven't had a chance to get particularly festive yet, though, have we? So, Rob, I'd like you to uh, pull the first cracker. Yep, okay. Please. All right, let's, let's hear the gag. What have you got there? Well, we've actually got a paperclip, right. which should be sort of large isn't paperclip. very funny. A but large pink paperclip. Yeah. If you could get on with the joke, please. Okay, here we go, guys. Mm. Where should a dressmaker build her house? Any takers? Well, No. No, no, no idea. No. Come on, Sue, you must no, know this. I've made a few dresses, but I can't get that. Well, of course, on the outskirts. Yeah, it's a very bad joke. No one laughing. Mm. Now, okay, well, well, we'll move on to the uh, big interviews now. But uh, just before we get started, let me just tell you a little bit about the magazine, which uh, you can buy in all good news agents in the UK and in borders in the US. Goes on sale on the last Tuesday of the month for just three pounds sixty. But you can save money in a trip to the shops by subscribing. UK podcast listeners can subscribe today for just sixteen pounds twenty every six issues, and that's a twenty-five cent saving on the cover price. You can order online at www.subscribeonline.co uk forward slash history magazine quoting pod 07 or you can call our hotline 0844-844-0250 so on to the interviews first we're gonna, going to go straight over to Julian Humphreys to find out just how one would go about capturing a castle can you just tell me uh, why you're interested in the subject of siege warfare well I think there's two reasons really first of all you can actually go to the spot where the sieges took, took place hmm. on a lot of occasions you can anyway and uh, so you can go for example to Dover and stand in one of the tunnels that the French had built to undermine the walls. You can go to somewhere like Carisbrook on the Isle of Wight and stand on the spot where apparently one of the defending crossbowmen picked off the French commander. So you can really get 
in touch with the past in that way. But also, one of the things about sieges is that because they quite often dragged on for quite a long time, you do get some sort of sense of a relationship between the two sides. And you get letters exchanged, you get formal summonses to surrender turning into grudging respect, sometimes then developing into utter fury and exasperation. So you get a sort of sense of a relationship between the opposing commanders and the opposing soldiers. And I think that makes it quite a human thing to study. Yeah, sure. Okay. So in your feature for the December issue of the magazine, you've told us the 10 ways to capture a castle. Now, just thinking about about the early history of castles, we first see castles in Britain in the 11th century with the Mott and Bailey that were built by the Normans after 1066. Now, a Mott and Bailey is essentially just a big mound with a wooden palisade. So I, I can think of one obvious way to attack that sort of fortification. So what happened with the early methods uh, well, in attacking yes, them. Yes, indeed. Um, you only have to look at the Bay of Tapestry, in fact, to see a little blueprint on how to capture a wooden castle, at least force its surrender, set it alight. Mm. Uh, you can see um, in, in the Bay of Tapestry, it says Dinor in Brittany, in fact, and you can see two Norman knights, they put their shields down, and they're holding up sort of burning firebrands and setting a light to the wooden walls above them. Meanwhile, one of the worried defenders is holding the keys of the castle out on the lance to surrender the castle. So obviously... <laughs> Fire is the key way, I suppose, yeah. to capture. If you're going to have to attack a castle, yeah. the, the only trouble with this is that you could end up with a load of charred ruins. Yeah. And more often than not, people who laid siege to castles wanted to capture them intact. Sure. For the obvious reason that they, they wanted to use them themselves afterwards. So if you could get a castle to surrender without having to damage it, so much the better. Yeah, OK. That was one of the key methods of capturing a castle, wasn't it? It was basically to ask nicely. Yes. Um, diplomacy, I think, is, is better George or than war war, as, as yeah. Churchill said, I think. But uh, the idea is somehow acquire a castle through marriage, through diplomatic means, as a ransom for something first. That, that is the, the, the key thing to do. But if that fails and it does come to conflict, yeah, ask nicely. Nicely in the sense of ask formally. There were set ways of doing this. Send a herald along to the, the castle in the later medieval period pay compliments to the defender's bravery, say, we're not, we're not questioning your bravery, etc., but this is your rightful king, or you have no chance of relief, surrender, and we'll let you go, essentially. Yeah. So, ask oh, nicely, yes. Yeah. So, okay, so if that method fails, if the castle defenders aren't too keen on surrendering, and we've moved slightly forward in time, so we're now no longer talking about wooden castles, which could easily be attacked by fire, we're talking about stone keeps, what then would you do if you did want to try and take a, a stone keep? Well, I suppose it depends on how much of a hurry you're in. Mm. If you're in a hurry, the, the, the easiest thing to do, or, or, or not the easiest, but the, the, the simplest thing to do would be to try a surprise attack. So essentially turn up at night with some ladders, try and get over the walls of the, of the, of the castle or, or keep in, in that way, or nip in through the door if it's, if, if it's not closed. And it, it sounds bizarre, but, uh, but this happened on more than one occasion. The, uh, the Scots were particularly adept at this in the... Uh, the the time of Robert Bruce, mainly because they didn't really have any siege engines, you know, large catapults and and what have you. So they did things like um, pushing uh, cartloads of hay through castle gates with men hiding under the real Robin Hood stuff, in fact, to jam jam the doors open, or sneaking up at night covered in blankets with the result that the defenders mistook them for a herd of cattle. These these, these things actually actually took place. So a, a, a sneak attack could work, Obviously, if you've summoned a castle to surrender, a sneak attack isn't going to work because the defenders are going to know that something's afoot. And in those circumstances, you have to go for something more of a, of a formal siege. Now, there are various ways that this could be done, I, I suppose. You could, you could 
bash the walls down. You could go over the walls, if not with ladders, with the belfries or giant siege towers of the medieval period. In other yeah. words, essentially big towers on wheels, which overlooked the walls so that people could, could shoot in. Or had drawbridges so that the, uh, that the soldiers sheltering within the tower could swarm over the battlements. So that was one way of, uh, of, of doing it. But uh, more often than not, the, 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 the surest way of, of, of getting into a, to a keep uh, was to undermine it. Yep. So essentially you, you dug a tunnel or a, a hole underneath a corner of the keep wall. Uh, you propped that up then, um, a bit like the Great Escape really, with, um, with, with, with wooden pit props or whatever you, you could find. You then piled a load of combustible material in that, set, that cavity. And then when you felt the time was right, you set a light to the combustible material, the props burnt through, and the wall came crashing down. This, of course, was not without its problems, because having done that, you ended up with a huge repair bill. Yeah. And, you know, you've gone through this, this effort of capturing a, a key, let's say Rochester, for example, which this is what happened at Rochester during the, the reign of, of King John. And afterwards, one, one corner of, the, of the, the keep had to be totally rebuilt. So it wasn't unknown for the, the attackers to do all of their work, undermine the, uh, um, the, the, the tower, and then invite the, one of the a representative of the defenders to come out and have a look and see what they've done. That's fantastic, isn't it? So yeah, do, we, do, we have, do we have records of that? What, what, what would the defenders yeah, they, say when they saw that? Well, they would, they would have a choice. Yeah. Um, the, the, uh, the, um, during the, the, the Crusades, and the later period of the Crusades, the um, Sultan Baibars, who was a great exponent of siege warfare, did this to the Crusaders on a number of occasions. Um, the, the English did it to the French during the, uh, the Hundred Years' War. Yeah. And um, essentially, it was that they were then given a choice. You know, well, look, you can see what's going to happen here. Um, if you surrender now, we'll let you go or we'll spare your lives or whatever they, they felt like offering the defenders. If, on the other hand, you force us to bring down the wall and launch an attack, your lives are forfeit, mate. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, so so it's a it's it's a pretty effective way of of, of taking a castle. Then it is. It's yeah. it's a pretty surefire way yeah. if you've got the right ground. Uh, yeah. And so castles like, for example, Dover, which are built on chalk, yeah. um, are somewhat vulnerable to uh, um, to undermining. But it doesn't mean that the defenders sort of sat in there and waited for the inevitable. Though. There's yeah. always things that they could do to counter it. They might dig a camouflette, which was a countermine of their own, yeah. and break into the, the, the attacker's mine, and then you'd end up with a sort of horrific fight in the dark with spades and pickaxes um, up underground. Or they might lay out um, uh, bowls of water at regular intervals around the walls, and the reason why they would do this is they could then determine where the undermining was taking place. The ripples from the uh, attacker's picks underground would obviously be uh, most marked where that was taking place, and therefore they, the, the defenders could prepare. Yeah. Um, for example, they, they might, as during the Albigensian Crusades, the, uh, the, the Cathars at Carcassonne built a second wall inside the, the main wall that was going to come down. Or at Dover, during the siege of, of uh, 1216, the, the defenders built a barricade out of wood on the inside of the tower that they knew was going to come down. Sure. So you could bring down the wall, but you still then had to, if you're an attacker, probably launch an attack yeah, yeah. And there's no guarantee it was going to succeed hmm. so undermining would have been just as uh, effective um, in terms of uh, bringing the walls down against um, a 12th century keep as it would have been against um, the more advanced 13th century sort of concentric ring type castle so I mean it, it would still bring down the walls wouldn't it? yes it would yeah yeah, yeah. so so did, did um, uh, castle attackers have to get even more sophisticated as uh, as castle defense technology developed 
yes, I mean, you, to, make, to make a sort of uh, rather obvious comparison, you've got a kind of arms race going on, really, but uh, improvements uh, in assault techniques required the defenders of castles to come up with something a little bit more um, imaginative, perhaps, to, to, to counter them. And the trouble with keeps was that, that, to all intents and purposes, if you were defending a keep, what you did was that you went inside, you locked the door, yeah. and there wasn't much more you could do. You, you might be able to drop objects from the, uh, from the battlements or sure. shoot out of the various apertures in, in the walls, although more often than not they were to let in light rather than to, to shoot out of. Out of. But so, so really you were just sat there hoping the defenders would, uh, the attackers would go away? Yeah, either they went away or that, that you had a, a relieving army somewhere in the area that might come along and, um, yeah. and, and, and help you. But there was, really it was what, what, what you might call a passive defence. Yeah. With the concentric castles, which are coming really from the, the, the reign of Edward I, so we're talking about you know, the second half of the, uh, of the 13th century, yeah. You've got a situation where the defenders have got more opportunities to strike back. Broadly speaking, a concentric castle, what you're doing is that you're, you're putting the emphasis of the defence away from the keep in the centre and further out into the walls. And you might have more than one, well, you would have more than one set of walls. So places like Beaumaris in Wales and Dover and indeed the Tower of London show this, where you've got a succession of walls, which meant that the attackers could be engaged from more than one place at once. And having got through the first wall, they were then in a, in a rather narrow killing zone with a second wall to, 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 to deal with. You'd also have a lot more um, emphasis placed on, on the gatehouse. Right. And the gatehouse became like the centre of the defence of, of the castle. And, the, and they became good examples of this, I suppose, of the Constable's Gate at Dover or the, the, the Gate at Carisbrook on the, on the Isle of Wight. And, in fact, the original Gate to the Tower of London where you had a whole succession of defences, so that the gatehouse became almost a, a castle in itself. Hmm. And what this did was, it, A, it, it increased the obstacles that the attacker had to deal with, but also it, it kept him further away. Yeah. So therefore, there was, he couldn't bring up his various siege engines to close range, yeah. sort of bombard something in, in an attempt to bring it to, to, to surrender. He was forced further and further back. Yeah, OK. But as you said, one of the key aims of someone attacking a castle would probably to be able to try and keep it in order. So if they didn't want to destroy the walls, if they didn't want to have to throw rocks at it, burn it or uh, undermine the walls, what else could they resort to get those defenders out of the castle if diplomacy had failed and they didn't want to just smash the walls in? Well, ultimately, the commonest way that a, that a castle fell was for somebody on the inside to let you in. Now, right. You could try treachery, bribery. You could you could offer the, the, the defenders positions, money, whatever it might be to get them to surrender. So the Scots, for example, when they uh, uh, attacked Carlisle Castle, uh, William the Lion attacking in the 1170s, he offered the, the constable of Carlisle to, uh, Castle a choice of gold and silver if he surrendered and a bad death if he didn't. Yep, fair so that was one thing you could do. But more often than not, the main thing that happened was that the attackers would simply surround the castle, make themselves as comfortable as they could, and wait for starvation and or sickness to take effect. Hmm. Which in itself was a fairly risky policy because you could be attacked by the relieving force coming up behind you. Yes, I mean, you, this was the problem with this approach, that A, there was a great possibility that a relieving force would come along and, uh, and attack you, and as a result you find that around many castles you ended up with siege works, castles of their own built by attackers, Corfe Castle in, in Dorset, you can still see, I think they're called the Rings, which mm. date back to the anarchy of Stephen and, and Matilda, which was where the, the, the besieging force were based. So you've got that problem. Also, you've got to supply your army. And if you're sitting there for maybe three, four, five months at a time, 
doing nothing, it could be quite expensive and, and indeed quite difficult. So we still got, for example, the accounts of the siege of, of Kenilworth in the 1260s, where Henry III had to go to all sorts of, uh, of lengths to, to keep his army supplied. You've got the royal forest being denuded of, um, of deer and stags to feed his household. You've even got the Sheriff of London sending up what's described as a whale for the attackers to eat. So you, you had that difficulty, and it could be worse if you were operating in hostile territory. So good example of this are the, are the Crusaders during the, the Third Crusade when they were laying siege to Acre. They were, in a sense, besieged while they were laying siege to Acre. So there was rampant inflation in, in the crusading camp, and the, the smallest amount of food went for, for the hugest amounts of money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, of course, if you were laying siege to a castle and you had specialists in your army, because you, know, you, could, you could rely on your feudal levies and on your immediate households, I suppose, if you were a, bes- a besieger, you, know, you needed specialist engineers, you needed specialist troops, you might need specialist artillerymen, for example, you have to pay them. Hmm. So that was another problem. It could become quite expensive. Yeah. So I suppose as developments in artillery and gunpowder progressed towards the end of the medieval period, it became less and less tenable that anyone would actually ever be able to hold out in a siege situation for that long. So when when the castles start to lose their status as defensive places? Well, they always, of course, had more than one status. I mean, obviously, we're talking here about castles as bastions, I suppose, mm. as places of war, but they were always a lot more than that. So they were residences, they were status symbols, they were prisons, they were storehouses, they were administrative centres, and so on and so on. And so they never lost their importance in, in that way through the medieval period. But by the 15th century, with the onset of gunpowder artillery from a military point of view all things being equal a, a castle state were numbered because a high stone wall was not proof against gunpowder artillery yeah however having said that there wasn't a lot of it about and the great sort of guns of for example the wars of the roses period were so rare in fact that they all had their own names so edward the fourth's um, uh, siege train that he used after the battle of Towton in the 1460s all the great sort of iron and bronze guns he had, they had their own names. There was Dijon and there was Newcastle and there was one I think that was called Richard Bombadel, which is quite a good name for a gun. Because it does exactly what it says on the name. But these were expensive to manufacture. They terribly difficult to transport these things. And so there were a lot more castles really than there were guns. But if an attacker was determined enough and had the resources and he had the logistical arrangements to get those guns into position, a castle was in a little bit of a, a, a difficult situation then. But we come back to that, that question of, do the attackers want a damaged castle? Yeah. You could easily blow a castle to smithereens once you've got your artillery in place. But that's not much good if you want to use it yourself at a later date. And I suppose the great example of this is that it's the first English castle to fall through bombardment, which was Bamborough Castle, which was one of the last Lancastrian strongholds during the... Um, the middle period of the Wars of the Roses, we're talking about 1464, where the Nevilles, uh, Warwick and Montague, in fact, fighting for Edward IV, brought the Yorkist siege train up to Bamborough and were in a position to bombard the castle. But the problem with that was that Bamborough was an important royal castle. It was an administrative centre and it was also an important base against the Scots, who weren't that much further up the road, as it were. And they really didn't want to have to destroy it. And, in fact, that the Neville sent a, a, a herald into the castle saying that, uh, you know, this is a duel, this castle, and we wish to, uh, to preserve it because of its proximity to the border. And for every cannonball that you force us to uh, fire at the walls, a head will be removed when we capture it. Oh, right. Gruesome. Yeah. 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 
In the event, actually, the castle was surrendered because it was badly damaged, but a falling piece of masonry hit the garrison commander on the head. And whilst he was incapacitated, somebody else took the opportunity to surrender. I see. Well, Julian, many thanks for that uh, fascinating insight into capturing castles. And it's a, a rather more nuanced subject than perhaps we might think of just throwing rocks or trying to burn it down. Indeed. Thank you very much. Cheers. Enemies at the Gate, English Castles Under Siege from the 12th Century to the Civil War by Julian Humphreys is published by English Heritage. Now that's castles dealt with. Before we move on to Max Hastings, Sue and Rob, let's have that second festive cracker. Okay, no cheating. Oh, oh, what was hey. that? What was he cheated. He did. That was a prize there. We've got some cards. <laughs> there you go, see. What did the beaver say to the tree? Mm. Is this rude? Uh, what did the beaver... I don't know. My what small teeth you've got. Chop, chop. I don't no, know. Nice gnawing you. Just oh. That's worse than my one. That's just yeah, awful, it is isn't it? And now we move over to the war in the Pacific, and let's hear what Max Hastings had to say when he spoke to Rob Attar. Are you hoping to overturn some popular misconceptions with this book? I think it is chiefly a business of perspective. When I pick up a book that announces that there are huge, big new revelations about the Second World War, I know that it's overwhelmingly likely that I'm not going to believe what's in it because there aren't many big revelations. What you can try and do is improve our perspective on events to try and see things in better perspective. So what were the biggest surprises for you in your research? I'm always interested in exploring people's cultures and of course here you're talking about the cultures of many different nations. I mean, I was absolutely fascinated. One day I was talking to a Japanese fighter pilot who was describing their last battles in the summer of 1945, which for them were very like the Battle of Britain for the pilots of fighter command. They lay around on the grass at their bases in Japan, waiting until they were scrambled, and then they had this terrific struggle to try and get up to altitude and engage these huge American B-29s, very often without much success. But I said to this old Japanese pilot, I said, what did you do on the ground while you were waiting to be called to action? And he said, oh, we played a lot of bridge. I said, bridge? And he said, oh, yes. He said, we were Navy, and the Japanese Navy prided itself on following closely the British cultural tradition. So um, bridge was a big thing for us. And he said, we played for pretty high stakes because we didn't think that we were likely to be around to spend the money. And I was absolutely riveted by this portrait of these would-be kamikazes sitting around calling two clubs three spades in between fighting these terrible battles with this enormous American Air Force overhead. And something in the book that interested me was when you talked about the Australian war effort. Yeah. And how that seemed to just fall apart. Well, it was a, it was a mystery to me. It was something I knew nothing at all about till I started to research it, that all I knew about Australia and the war was, first of all, Australia produced some terrific pilots, Secondly, the Australian Army had done brilliantly well in North Africa and in New Guinea in 1942-43. But from 1943 onwards, the Australian Army, for a variety of reasons which I've explained, sort of more or less found itself relegated to a a humiliating back seat. And this was a a mixture of forces. First of all, in the last stages of the war, MacArthur didn't really want anybody else in his American crusade to liberate the Philippines and uh, defeat Japan. But... Secondly, the dissensions inside Australia about the war and the political dissensions. I mean, you had all these extraordinary, the dock strikes, that the dock workers' unions, which were communist-dominated, behaved appallingly. The deployment of the British fleet in the Far East was seriously delayed, that there were the American official histories report the frightful difficulties of unloading supplies in Australian docks. In the end, they had to use a lot of American troops to offload supplies because the Australian dock workers behaved so appallingly. 
There were bad strikes in the mines. There was, it was an Australian newspaper that said towards the end of 1944 that this country is regenerating into something close to civil war politically. And it was a hell of a political mess. You had a very weak Labour government led by John Curtin. And a lot of Australian soldiers had only volunteered for home service, and they wouldn't volunteer for overseas service. So, for example, you've got probably the best fighting division on the Allied side in the Second World War was the 9th Australian Division, which fought in the Western Desert. But they were all volunteers. And by 1943, you've got half the Australian army, the so-called militia, who'd refused to volunteer for overseas service. You've got two or three Australian divisions of volunteers fighting in New Guinea. But you've got hundreds of thousands of Australian troops sitting about in Australia doing absolutely nothing. And in the last phase of the war, they found themselves relegated to mopping up on the islands after relieving American troops who'd uh, gone on to invade the Philippines and so on. And uh, Australia's experience in the last two years of the war was very unhappy and contributed very little militarily. And uh, again, I, I hadn't understood this at all until I started to write the book. And it's a sad story because the Australian contribution the first half of the war had been so sensational. And it's strange because obviously Japan was targeting Australia at one point. It wasn't. Absolutely. Well, this, of course, was what changed the Australian perspective. That when the Japanese started to sweep across the Pacific in December 41 and early 42, that first of all, the Australian government and most Australian people were very bitter about the failure of the British to defend them, that the deal had always been supposed to be of empire. They supported the home country in its faraway wars, but in return the home country defended their interests when they were threatened. And now suddenly Singapore and Malaya fells, and the entire Australian division goes down the tube in Singapore, and the Australian government panicked. And first of all, they insisted on the recall of all their troops from North Africa and elsewhere, and Churchill pleaded with them and begged with them to be allowed to keep at least some. But the Australians insisted on their entire army being returned to Australia. And although it was actually a very short period of time, in early 1942, when a Japanese invasion of Australia looked remotely credible, that the fact remained that thereafter the Australians were very unwilling to let their troops, in fact they flatly refused, to allow their troops fight anywhere other than in campaigns immediately around Australia. In other words, Australian troops fought with great distinction in New Guinea in 1942-43 before the Americans came on the scene. But Churchill begged in 1944 for some Australian troops to help in Burma, and the Australian government wouldn't have it at any price. And it's a very bitter story, and there was bitterness on both sides. There's no doubt the British government handled the Australian government insensitively, that Churchill really regarded the empire above all as a source of manpower, and he was very unwilling to give either the Australian government or the Canadian government a serious voice in decision-making about the war. And especially he liked Robert Menzies, the prime minister in the first half of the war, but after Menzies was succeeded by Curtin, the Labour prime minister, that Churchill had something close to contempt for Curtin's government wouldn't take them seriously and showed it. And, of course, this increased the bitterness uh, down there in Canberra. And how do you think the defeat of Japan compares to that of Germany, which you wrote about in Armageddon? Again, one reason I like writing books is that one always learns so much oneself in the course of writing them. And what you come to realise is, really, we all confuse ourselves by calling the Second World War the Second World War. We should call it the Second World Wars, in the plural, because... The war in Asia was so utterly different from the war in Europe. 
and Japan was pursuing utterly different objectives from those of Germany. And really, what's amazing is the degree to which the Japanese and the Germans, although they were supposedly allied to each other, took incredibly little interest in what each other were doing. And even in the West, what's striking is that uh, among the Western allies, Churchill and Roosevelt and their chiefs of staff were the only people who treated the European and Asian wars as a common cause. Everybody else who was involved, if you were fighting in Burma or uh, on Okinawa, what was happening in Europe seemed fantastically remote. You hardly thought about it, and vice versa. They were two very, very different wars. The whole mood of the wars was different, and I found it enormously rewarding writing about it. And I would like to think that what one's tried to do is to paint a portrait of this huge experience rather than merely run through a narrative, a lot of which is familiar. Well, I would like to hope that it will tell readers things that they hadn't thought about before about the Second World War. Because I suppose the war in Japan is far less well-known, certainly in Britain, than it is than the war against Germany is. Well, I think that's obviously because in the first instance it's more remote, but I would like to think that readers in Europe, now that Asia is becoming so critical in our world, and now that we can all see how vital China is becoming to the future of the globe, you can't understand what China is today without understanding where China came from in the Second World War, that the whole politics of Asia to this very day are dominated by passionate Chinese hatred of the Japanese for what they did in China in the Second World War and for their absolute refusal to apologize for it. And this is still a huge factor in Chinese politics. And if one wants to understand what Asia is today, you've got to know what happened in the 1930s and 1940s. And I would like to think that whereas a generation ago, yes, people were much more interested in the war in Europe, today Asia looms so large that I think there is a much bigger public out there than there used to be for uh, learning about the Asian war. Max Hastings' Nemesis, The Battle for Japan, 1944-45, is published by Harper Press. So thanks for that, Rob. Finally, let's go back in time a little further and find out what I discovered when I was privileged to go deep inside the enigmatic Neolithic monument, Silbury Hill. And we're going to hear what the English heritage archaeologist Jim Leary, who's leading the project in Silbury Hill, uh, has to say about that curious place. Right, if you just sort of could come in as far as you can, and I'll just talk to you here... We're now right in the centre of the hill. We're looking at the very primary mound, effectively the genesis that later became Silbury as we know it. This is the very first construction, and it's a five metre high mound of earth and turfs, literally turfs that have been sods of ground that have been cut and piled up, and a mixture of chalk and some clay and some gravel. And so this is what we're looking at. Just these, All these different colours are just layers of, presumably, just basket loads of what looked like uh, riverine muds, some chalk, clay, and these rather remarkable black patches are turves of ground that would have had... You can see the, the black line across the top is where the grass would have been growing. So this primary mound was very rapidly encased in chalk and what that's done is preserved organic remains that we don't normally get from this period from any period really but particularly from this period and we don't get them preserved as well as they've been preserved here the preservation is phenomenal from this sequence here we we have insects we have ants that have been preserved we have beetles wing cases and, and that's just the tiny samples that we've processed. We still have a long way to go. On the top of the old ground surface, there's a, a black line 
of organics, which is actually made up of grass and moss. And we've processed some of that, and the grass is still green and still intact. And, and the moss looks like somebody picked it up the other day. The preservation is absolutely phenomenal. And for this type of landscape in this period, that makes it unique. So how you said it was rapidly encased by chalk. What's, what do you mean by rapid? Well, we have started a redating programme for, for Silver Hill using a number of our radiocarbon samples. Not everything has been dated that we will date. But the initial samples show that the primary mound was constructed at 2400 BC or a generation either side of that. So we have a very, very tight date for the primary mound. The secondary mound, interestingly, the, the Silbury 2, the chalk mound, comes out as 2400 BC or a generation either side of that as well. Okay. And that's based on antler fragments that we recovered from Silbury 2. So it shows that Silbury 1 and 2 must have been a pretty rapid process, at least perhaps over a couple of generations. Silbury 3, we have two models. Model 2 suggests that it's also a rapid process at 2400 BC. Model 1, which I prefer, has Silbury 3 as a later construct, centred around about 2000, so a few hundred years later. And that's the model I prefer at the moment. More dating needs to be done and will be done, and that will iron out you know, which models are the correct ones. But my reason for thinking that Silbury 3 is later is the grass that we recovered from the top of Silbury 2. It shows that there was at least a standstill. Um, that doesn't need to be particularly long, admittedly, but it does show that it was a standstill. I have to say that uh, the, the sense that I get from looking at the, all the phases of uh, Silbury Hill suggests that it's a monument in action, in progress. No one ever sets out to construct it of a certain shape or size. It just grows and expands. And I have a feeling that the construction of Silbury Hill is probably as important to the builders as the final monument. And I think that we get the same from uh, looking at stone circles and timber circles. They always seem to be moving. Posts come out, posts get redone, put in new places. The blue stones at Stonehenge get pulled out, moved around, put in. And it gives us a sense that they're not trying to create a final product. So they weren't trying to create a final mound, Silbury Hill. It was the building of it. It was the act of doing it. That was what was important. Um, and another important aspect of the turves that we've analysed from this section of the primary mound, they don't seem to have come from this soil horizon. So logically you would say, we know that the soils have been, the tiles have been stripped from under Silbury 2 and 3, or under Silbury 2. Logically you'd think, well, that probably stripped it and piled it up over, you know, to form Silbury 1. Well, that, that doesn't seem to be the case. These turves seem to have come from elsewhere, from a calcareous soil. So it suggests that people are, are bringing turves in and soil in. A lot of the soil in here, it seems to be riverine, and the gravel is riverine. So perhaps they're, they're bringing it from uh, the river. It gives us a nice association with that river and the, and the Swallowhead Springs, which is very nearby. So it, it sort of suggests that this mound is bound up with water, with springs, and people are bringing turves of ground with them. Why, um, we, we don't know. We still need to work out where exactly these turves have come from in the landscape. But it could be that communities are coming from far and wide to Silbury Hill, and as they're coming, they're bringing a little patch of their ground with them. Uh, we, we, we don't know. 
So am I right in thinking that the basic system is we had the ground surface, which was de-turfed, and then there were a lot of people wandering around it for a, yeah. for a length of time, and yeah. then they started building Silbury One, which is yeah. basically riverine mud and some turf, yeah. and a, 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 a fairly I small mound? It's a small mound. They start off with a gravel core, and then they pile mud and turfs over the top of that, and that uh, is a, around about a five-metre-high mound, 35-metre diameter mound. And that's Silbury 1? And that's Silbury 1. Okay, and then Silbury 2, that's just chalk that's being chalk. just put on top of... Yeah. Just, just basically just dumped on top Dump, of it? Dumped on top. No structural um, elements, as far as you can see? As, as far as we can see, no. I mean, it, it seems as if they've basically created a large bank around Silbury 1 and then infilled on top of the bank. That seems to be the construction technique, looking at the tip lines. So yeah, we, I mean, we can have a look at, when we go into the East Latch, we can have a look at that interface between Silbury 1 and Silbury 2. <coughs> and then Silbury 2, that grassed over briefly, and then Silbury 3... Sil- Sil- Silbury 2 seems to be uh, a 25 metre high mound, and, and yeah, that's grassed over. So there's a standstill period, and then we get renewed activity again, and that's the final construct, Silbury 3. Yep. Which is what we see today, yep. And that was Dave with a rare look inside Silbury Hill to wrap up this month's podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening, and please do make sure you check out the magazine for more on all the topics you've been hearing about. We've also got a special extra Christmas quiz podcast coming up to keep you entertained over the festive period. That's going to be ready to download from the 10th of December. Well, that's about it from us. We hope you all have a great Christmas, and we'll be back with lots more for you in 2008. But for now, goodbye. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.